Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Podcast. On this episode, we're talking about investment appraisals. And I'm not joined by Dave tonight. He's got a prior engagement. He's out for dinner. But his loss is my gain because I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Alex Griffiths. Good evening, Alex. Hi, Ben. Yeah. Happy to substitute in for Dave tonight. So, yeah. No problem. And the topic of investment appraisal is right up your street. I know it's one of the things that you teach lots of in all of the various qualifications. But before we get on to that, welcome back. You've been on the podcast before. How's things going in the world of managing our tutor team across East Anglia? Yeah, good. So, yeah, a lot of people do it, doing their exams now. So, um, so yeah, so hoping, yeah, all our hard work's being put to good use. So um, just fingers crossed for all the students, really. So for podcast listeners who could be listening to this at any point in the future, we're recording this on the 6th of December. I can see Christmas decorations yeah. up around the office in Cambridge. This is a very busy week for a lot of students, lots of exams this week. We've got lots of students sitting either ACCA or ICAW exams, but we've also got some of the on-demand students doing their AAT exams and SEMA exams, trying to get slots in this side of the new year. So a really busy time for students, but hopefully light is at the end of the tunnel. And maybe you're listening to this in a more reflective mood, having done your exam and now catching up on some previous episodes of the podcast. So if you are, you are very welcome and thank you for downloading the episode. So tonight we're talking investment appraisal. It crops up in a number of the exams. So usually linked to what we would broadly call financial management, Alex. Yep, absolutely. So looking into kind of investment appraisal opportunities um, in just a variety of different scenarios. So you have it at SEMA at pretty much all levels, really. So I think Abby, I think one person said they're doing case study or here, there, all case studies, but you'll have it, ICAW, ACCA, but also a lot at level uh, K4, AAT too. So. Particularly relevant for the Applied Management Account exam. I've seen it come up there yeah. a number of times. But away from the exams, it's very, very relevant as a skill for the modern finance professional. I think increasingly it's something that businesses are looking for some help, support, guidance on, making an informed decision about investing money, hopefully for some form of future payback or return. So we're going to explore some of the financial tools that Alex teaches people in the classroom that you might find coming up in your exam syllabuses. But importantly, you can maybe look to use, you can maybe look to get involved with at work. But as well as just the financial side of investment, we're also going to touch on some of the non-financial factors that increasingly come into the exams as additional things, particularly relevant in written tasks to think broader than just the, the numbers that you are presenting or presented with. So let's start with the financials because we are accountants after all. Alex, if, if somebody was looking at an investment, so they're going to have to pay out some money today, what sorts of financial tools or analysis would you be doing on that investment proposal? Well, firstly, I'd want to know well, how much am I going to get back? So if you gave, or I gave you £100 or vice versa, I'd want to know, firstly, to make this whole thing worthwhile, how much am I going to be getting back? Because if it's only £101, well, 
who really cares? Uh, okay. But what would be much also really useful is the time. When do I get that money back? And that's what usually dictates uh, okay, a lot of the other factors in this kind of topic as well. So looking at some of the, the calculations, the tools that are in the exam syllabuses, yep. you've, you've mentioned a couple of factors there. The first one I wanted to explore was something that we will see in our course notes called a return on the investment. So what, what does a return on investment actually involve? Well, it's kind of it's a little bit given away in terms of the actual title. So when you actually calculate this, when they say return, that is how much do I get back? My profit. So it'll be the profit that you have. So like your profit before you've paid any interest and tax that you would have earned from just that project. But over okay, the capital that you've put into that project. Okay, so the initial investment. So it is as simple as return over investment. Yeah. And that means we can calculate that as a fraction, but usually we would see that expressed as a percentage yeah. in an exam question and an exam answer. Yeah, absolutely. Just so you can start to compare it to other maybe potential projects that you have as well. So quite a nice one. Catches people's eyes. This investment will return you X percentage. Yeah. We'd normally express that as an annual return. So the amount of investment you put in up front compared to the amount you will effectively earn back on that investment per year. But just looking at that can sometimes be too crude a measure, I guess. Um, we would presume a higher percentage is good and we can compare it to other things. But you also mentioned the other factor you would want to consider, the timing of the return. So that opens up the second thing we would normally look at in a, an investment appraisal, the payback period. So, yeah, typically, if you do have a project, of course, uh, you would want your money back as soon as possible, because the sooner you're planning to get your money back, the less risk there is involved. So you would be more certain as to what cash flows or events are going to happen in a project that will pay you back in six months than you would one in five years where you think well anything could happen in that period as we've seen in the last few years so shorter the payback here the quicker you get your money back the better so basically that involves looking at the amount of money you are spending out for the investment today and then working out how many months or potentially years it will take to effectively get your money back yeah Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of how long does it take to recoup that initial investment to break even, so to speak. But again, like this, it's not a perfect measure. It's one you would kind of look at in conjunction with others. So Dave's not here this evening, but Dave would normally talk about his mum test. That's the sort of thing I think I would be able to explain to my mum. If I went to my mum and said, mum, I've got a really good investment idea, but I need a hundred pounds today to get it up mm. and running. I would imagine one of her first questions to me would be, Ben, here's the £100. When can I expect to get my money back? And so effectively, that is telling her the assumed payback period. We would calculate it, as we say, in months, in years. And the presumption is the shorter the payback period, the more attractive that investment is from a, a risk perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you'll be, uh, okay, if you go, you can have the money back tomorrow. There's far less that can go wrong in hopefully those 24 hours than if you said in a year's time, so shorter the better naturally one of the limitations because quite often in the exam you will have to challenge the investment appraisal method used one of the limitations i presume is it only looks at you getting your money back 
what's the problem with just uh, judging the investment or when you get your money back, you recoup your investment, as you said earlier? Well, it's quite a few things. And in actually a lot of the syllabuses, you don't always just have to calculate this, but you actually have to say problems with the payback calculation in itself in that we may work out that we're getting our money back in a year and a half, but it doesn't actually consider, well, how long does the project go on for as a whole? So it may go on for six, seven, eight, nine years, but all we've said is, well, how quickly are we getting that initial bit of funding back? So it doesn't look at the entire duration of the project. Um, also as well, it's quite hard to sometimes compare projects uh, okay, under this method, because if you're a big business and you're going to spend out hundreds of millions, you would naturally expect the payback periods to usually be longer, but more fruitful in the long run than one then if Ben uh, okay, lent his mum or mum lent him £100 for a fortnight. And payback periods, uh, okay, whilst may be quicker, the overall profitability may not be as high. So that brings us on to the third one. And the one usually when we look in the textbooks, it says this is the the, the Premier League or yeah. the, the Champions League, that the, the tip top of investment appraisal techniques financially is something called net present value analysis. So let's start breaking that down. What does net present value actually mean? It's essentially how much does the cash inflows that we're making from this project, how much hopefully, do they exceed uh, okay, the cash outflows in today's terms? So hopefully if we had all of that money from the project brought back into today's figures, how much more is the money we've earned worth more than the money we've paid out? So just picking up on a few things you said there, Alex, um, we get this as one number. So yeah. the MPV, the answer is a number and it will be in pounds or dollars, whatever yeah. currency we're doing the, the, the project, the investment in. But you said cash. And so I think, first of all, I'd like to distinguish, ideally, in an NPV analysis, we look at the physical cash we yeah. expect to pay out and then get in over a time series. Yeah, absolutely. It's much harder to manipulate your future estimates of cash flow, whereas sometimes we, we said earlier with return on investment, that's profit. And whatever with your depreciation, your bad debt policies, these figures can always be manipulated or distorted to look better than maybe than what they're actually going to be. So we always do prefer cash flow to uh, okay, profits because it's certain, hopefully. So this looks ideally at the whole life of the project from the initial investment today. Yep. And we would normally start saying, how much money do we have to pay out today? And then we look to effectively forecast the money we expect to pay out and get back for the project. We would usually do that year by year. Yeah, absolutely. It gets very tricky otherwise, uh, okay, if you're trying to do it month by month, because no one's going to know exactly what all of your future cash flows will be from one month to the next, looking years into the future. So annually is very common in all syllabuses. So it's quite hard to maybe visualise this, but we'll, we'll do our best on the podcast. I always think of potentially a spreadsheet where you've got a column for now, but we tend to call now T0, that's today in time. And then effectively, we've got a column for this time next year, T1, this time in two years, T2, yeah. and so on, all the way through. And really, it comes down to trying to predict what money will come out and what money will go into the investment in each of those years. At the end, there will usually be some closure cost, but there might even be some return on that final year when you sell the machinery that you no longer use, for example. 
Absolutely. You could sell the machinery. You might even be able okay, to sell that project to someone else. Um, okay, it's quite a common scenario. But it's all the same. It all comes out in the same thing, just expressed different ways. So I'm hearing some benefits, the fact that it's cash flows. Yep. So it's probably more exact than anything that's a, a financial profit indicator of an investment. It should look at the whole of the project length. It gives us an answer that's one number, which yep. means we've got a quite simple number to look at, benchmark for our investment. And the final thing is you said it takes account of time, but also brings it to the present value. Let's just explore that a bit more. What, what does that mean we have to do with these cash flows to get them into their present value? Well, hopefully here, if I said to everyone, what would you rather have, £100 today or £100 in a year's time, um, especially with inflation being what it is, we would all probably say we'd rather have it now because in a year's time, that £100 won't be able to buy us as much. So what we want to be able to say is if I know that I am estimated to receive £100,000 in four years' time, well, we know that's not worth £100,000 in today's money. And so what we want to be able to do is say, okay, how much is that worth today? And we would do that by using a discount factor okay, to help get that back from future value into present value. So very simplistically, in my head, I always think money in the future is worth less than money today Always. you'd rather have the money in your pocket today than the money in your pocket in a year's time you could go out and invest it earn interest on it if you had it today so all we're trying to do here is work out what cash flows we expect to happen next year the year after and all those years into the future but then we reduce them down discounting implies they're going to become lower amounts when we try to put them into today's terms so um, in an exam question, it's quite often given to you some discount factors yeah. based on a percentage. Yeah. And you would then apply those factors to multiply the number by that to bring them down to their present value today. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I'll be honest, whilst in all syllabuses, whatever paper you're doing, you will always be given that discount factor. Uh, okay. They may say it's 10%, 12%. It will always be given. Uh, okay. But one of the innately hard things with what we're looking at here with net present value is, well, how do you decide what that discount factor is? And should it just be a whole percentage of a certain percentage number for all projects or should you adjust it based on maybe how risky that project is? So it's it's never an easy number to come to. And it's, in a lot of syllabus, it's a whole separate topic on how that number is calculated. So we've done our cash flows. Yep. We've worked out a percentage that we're going to discount them by. We've used the factors. Mm -hmm. We've now got a present value for each of those years' cash flows. Final step is we add them all together to come up with one number. Absolutely. So if we add up all of our cash flows, all of the usually at time zero, as Ben said earlier, that will be a negative cash flow. So we have to pay money out to set up the project. And quite commonly in the subsequent years, you'll have money coming in. But it's all in present value terms now. So all that we will do is add it all up. And if we do get a positive number at the end of that, we would say we would want to accept the project because that means the cash inflows in today's terms are worth more than the outflows. So hypothetically, and I know I'm getting a little bit more technical here, but if our discount factor was, say, 
we would say we want to accept the project because it's given a return of greater than 10% as we have got that positive net present value. If it was a negative MPV, we would say we would reject it because the project gives a return of less than 10%. Brilliant. So we get one number. If it's positive, we would say, yes, we should make money in the long run yeah. on this project. If it's negative, that would concern us. And we'd probably say we don't want to touch that project. But I suppose it also means we can compare one project to another because we've got a number and we would go with the investment that gave us the biggest MPV if that was the, the one that we wanted to do. Potentially, if the projects are a similar size, then, yeah, the project that has the bigger or greater positive MPV you would, would be the one that is more likely to be more profitable. Um, the issue is, is, of course, the one thing it doesn't consider, as our answer is given to us, is just one whole absolute number, is that it doesn't consider the size of the project. Because, of course, a project that is earning in millions of pounds each year, that project's MPV will be greater than a project whose MPV is in hundreds of pounds. So it does get a little bit harder to compare if the projects are significantly different in size. Great. There are some financial tools, very examinable content, but all of them require an element of guesswork, for want of a better term. This yeah. is all speculative. This is what we expect the project to earn us in year one, two, three and mm. four. There is clearly an element of uncertainty there around any investment appraisal. What are some of the things we can do to maybe consider the risks of the investment aside from just the numbers that it returns? So well, we would do our, hopefully before we do all of this, we do our market research to try and estimate maybe from this project what our potential sales, our costs are going to be. Um, this will also usually need to be backed up anyway, um, because if you're going to be able to fund the project, uh, you might need to go to a bank in order to raise maybe some loan finance in order to do this. And they would want evidence as well of how you have, come to your future estimates um, but some of the other things we can do and that are far more examinable are maybe doing things like a sensitivity analysis and uh, bringing in probabilities things like this so let's just break down a few of those i think the first thing you talked about was the the reasonableness of the assumptions that we've made and this is where we need to remain ethically aware i think a lot of businesses would be more positive about the investment potential than reality would suggest they should be. I have worked with business owners and they are usually quite positive people that would say, oh, we probably expect to do better on the project than we know realistically they're going to do. So there is an element of reasonableness that we need to bring as a financial professional. We need to look at reasonableness of the level of income they're going to generate the level of growth does that make financial sense absolutely and you see this all the time if you imagine you're watching something like dragon's den and people suddenly go on there saying oh i'm gonna make i'm gonna sell a hundred thousand units in the first year and they go okay so how many have you sold already and they go well nothing yet but you could just otherwise be plucking numbers out of the sky and it all sounds wonderful but you've got to be able to convince people that to do this and okay and part with their money that there is some sort of backing and evidence behind this so then you mentioned a couple of other things, which I suppose shows we have considered that there is potential for us not to maybe hit our target forecast. You talked about sensitivity analysis. So very briefly, what, what does sensitivity analysis actually involve, Alex? So this is 
in to get it in just like one sentence this is really just looking at one variable at a time of that project maybe our advertising costs our sales revenue and just saying well how much could this variable so maybe our sales revenue how much could it afford to fall before we're no longer making a profit before this is no longer an acceptable project I, I usually get students to maybe visualize some dials that they can play around with. So we know we have got an expected net present value of our project of this much. Yeah. And then I think, right, sales would be a dial. How much would I have to turn sales down by before that went to zero? And you might say, oh, actually, I've only got to miss my sales target by 3% and this project stops making us money that would worry me quite a bit absolutely because it's it's very realistic that you're not going to hit your sales target by 3%. If you came back to me and said actually Ben we can afford to miss our sales target by 50% even if we only get half the sales we expected this project will still make us money I'm going to be much more confident in that project. Absolutely yeah and it works the same as well not just the sales but the costs um if you suddenly set off the variable cost of buying a unit goes up by 2% we're no longer going to be profitable that would scare the life out of people okay so it is whether it is for sales whether it is for cost that lower the percentage the riskier that variable is so the one thing it doesn't tell you is well, the likelihood of that variable changing so for whilst for sales and variable costs they can fluctuate quite a bit so they could cause quite a lot of concern Maybe if it's something like fixed costs, hopefully they are fixed. So even if they did appear quite sensitive and could only afford to go up by 10%, hopefully they're fixed. There's not much chance of that. And then the last thing you mentioned was a bit of probability. So in my head, that's where we look at potential outcomes. And I would normally explain this to somebody by saying, look, what do you think the best case? What do you think the worst case? What do you think the mid case is? Yeah. And then let's try and think about uh, likely, how likely is it we hit best case? How likely is it we hit worst case? How likely is it we hit mid case? And then we can usually turn those probabilities into a percentage. Absolutely. Um, and that's what's called, what you've described there is an expected value, which is just a weighted average. Nothing more, just, as you said, timesing each potential outcome by the probability and adding it all up. Cool. So we might say, look, there's a 30% chance we'll hit best case. There's a 30% chance we'll hit worst case. And there's a 40% chance we hit mid case. And this is how much we expect to get from best case, worst case, mid case. We can multiply all that together and add it up to come up with one number. And we expect that to happen. Now, in any probability, it is much more accurate if we've got multiple events happening. Yeah. So we'd have to kind of say, but in a one-off project, you're either going to get best case, worst case, or mid case. Yeah, for a one-off kind of outcome, it's it's not, not always the greatest because it is a fictitious number, that expected value, that weighted average. But it's sometimes quite nice if you're a little bit more kind of risk neutral and you're not just saying, oh, I'm going to chase after and be really uh, okay, optimistic and risk-seeking and say, oh, the best is always going to happen. But I'm not being... Uh, risk averse and just assuming the worst so it's sometimes quite a nice middle ground as well but it does rely on again how accurate are those probabilities and that then exactly right Alex boils down to the individual investor's appetite for risk yeah. 
you've already talked about Dragon's Den. Mm. We know the investors on Dragon's Den don't put all of their money into one investment because they know one investment has got a high chance of failing, particularly when they are high risk investments like the people going on Dragon's Den. They will actually have a portfolio of investments. They will balance and spread their risk out by saying, well, instead of investing all of my money in one project, it would be much better to invest 5% of my money in 20 different projects. Yeah. And you see it even on like per uh, case study that comes into the show where sometimes they will say, look, I'll give you half the money for half the investment, hoping that one of the other dragons will get involved and kind of share that risk with them as well. So, um, yeah, it happens on, yeah, like Ben said, a whole kind of portfolio basis for them, but it can also happen on an individual. And it works all the same way as well with individual companies where if they have got really great opportunity in front of them that could give huge profits for quite a few years, they may have a massive initial cost. They may not want to okay, foot the entire cost themselves. So they actually may go to a rival company and say, look, would you manage, would you be willing to do like a shared service or shared partnership with us or like an alliance for this project where we can share, of course, not just the risks, but also the rewards too? So we've looked at some financial analysis. We've looked at some of the risks involved and ways that we can maybe go into an investment with our eyes open to the risks. Let's talk about some of the non-financial factors, because increasingly in exam questions, there are usually quite a number of marks, actually, for more than just the numbers, the financial analysis. And it's something that I see more and more in the real world resonating with people. So ethical investment is a term we will hear a lot of. What, what does ethical investment mean to you, Alex? I always kind of think is, well, if people were clear of the uh, okay facts and what you were doing to raise this money how would they react uh, okay would they be pleased to know uh, okay that they have received their profit from the activities that you've been doing uh, okay. and i think traditionally we have focused in on the projects that give us maximum financial return yeah and i'm not saying that's the wrong way to look at projects but increasingly people want to know what's had to have been done to make that money and so that's where we can break the ethics down, maybe into some environmental concerns around the project. We see a lot of that these days with environmentally conscious investors. What sorts of things might they want to know about the project from an environmental standpoint, do you think? Well, firstly, just it's the resource that we're using to make the, maybe the good that we're selling. Uh, okay, is it sustainable? Are we likely to have that resource going forwards, not just for this year, but for the next decade? If it's going to run out, uh, okay. It may look great now, but we might not have anything going forward longer term. We'd also consider maybe the environmental damage. So the yeah. level of CO2 emissions, the level of recycling used in the project, the level of natural damage to the, the wildlife or the landscape. All of that stuff, although not necessarily seen directly in the financial numbers, is a consideration these days. And investors might be willing to accept a lower return mm if they know it comes with the credibility of being an environmentally sustainable and well-managed project. And that doesn't even have to be just today. Again, that could be a lot of common things. Maybe they're worried about not just fines and penalties now by doing and operating in a certain way, but maybe uh, okay, if legislation and laws change in the future, that actually what uh, okay, future costs uh, okay, 
could we be exposed to longer term uh, by not acting in a certain way? So um, I know Ben's, but they're possibly political. Absolutely. So um, very much the same kind of thing. If a new government comes into power, that change could occur. It, it's a really good way to future-proof the project, isn't it? To look on the landscape as to what might be changing. We know there are lots of pushes for CO2 emissions and, and climate change targets and trying to future-proof a project before we go and invest our money in it today and realise in another five years we can't actually follow through on this. We have seen the government slightly backtrack on their push for electric cars, yeah. but it's still something that's very much on the agenda. So being aware of that is our project future-proof for the environment, for the political landscape, and also the social aspects of it. So social conscience in the investment as well, thinking about the way it's going to treat the people involved. Any examples there that we might want to consider about a project from a social aspect? So maybe, yeah, what impact is it going to have on like kind of local societies? What is it going to take jobs away, maybe potentially as well from a local workforce? And how is that going to be reacted to as well? Because it may you may then lose a lot of local demand and support. So there's loads of different ways here that uh, okay, it could be viewed socially. Uh, okay. And if it's something that's in any way almost your project trying to be a little bit slightly exploited uh, okay, of people or any kind of demographic, everyone knows here okay that that kind of uh, okay news becomes national news very quickly uh, okay and then can have a massive uh, okay steamrolling impact on that business i suppose the other non-financial factor i wanted to touch on was just how this investment fits in with your broader business strategy yep. because we, we've talked about people having portfolios in investments companies not just doing one thing and so i guess that's also a consideration um, the term we use is diversification, Alex. What does diversification mean? Well, the idea that actually if you have got, uh, okay, uh, for instance, an investment and in, let's say suntan cream, uh, and you think, oh, the weather's wonderful, I'm going to sell loads and make masses of profits on that. But if the worst was to happen and we had a traditional English summer, uh, okay, you may be a little bit exposed to much lower profits then. So what we would look to do is kind of reduce our risk uh, okay, in that case and have more certainty of our future profits by maybe then having another side business on umbrellas. So that at least then if one side of our portfolio does well with suntan cream, the other side will do uh, okay adversely. But the two should kind of net off and give us that certainty as to what our overall future profits should be. And that's quite often one of the advantages that the big, large businesses have got, that they've got the potential to diversify themselves with different product lines and different service lines in different locations. And all of that considered for a small business, it's much harder, isn't it, to diversify because you are a specialist usually in one or two things. Absolutely. And like you said there, you even subtly said about different even different markets it could be different countries and currencies as well. So that. If in the UK we went through a massive, massive recession and there isn't as much demand, there may be then in other currencies and in other countries that could maybe again offset that. Brilliant. There, there will be in exam questions lots of clues that you can draw on yeah. around those non-financial issues, but that's where students do need to put their thinking caps on in an exam. That's where you need to think what could be some of the wider issues, some of the non-financial aspects that I need to bring into my analysis and then way up in my conclusion. Finally, we talk about some real options. And I really like teaching this because they're very practical. 
They're very practical in their approach and give you things that businesses really like because nobody might have asked the question. Nobody might have thought of these. So the first one, Alex, we talked about was growth potential. Why would we want to weigh up the growth potential in an investment before we went and said yes or no to it? Um, because really it may lead to a lot more uh, okay, profitable uh, okay, ventures further down the line. So it might just be that, oh, my current venture okay, may appear borderline okay, acceptable to us at the moment. It's to say what we were saying earlier, oh, it's NPV only maybe a few pounds positive. But we might still actually want to accept that because it may get our foot in the door and lead okay, to much more okay, even profitable future opportunities too. So I call that sometimes follow-on potential. Yeah. What might this investment lead us to be able to do in the future? Yeah. So taking, for example, first intuition, we might have set up first intuition purely delivering AAT courses, but there was the clear follow-on potential that if we invest in AAT courses, we could then launch different courses. We yeah. could maybe do some ACCA or some SEMA teaching. We could even go into different areas of maybe leadership and management, but all of those are follow-on potential yeah. that although you maybe can't put numbers on them initially, they have kept the door open or they're a really nice route into something. Yeah, absolutely. And it can work in terms of kind of that follow-on option, as you were saying. It can also happen in terms of kind of scale as well. That um, if you were looking to and kind of manage that risk a little bit more, rather than opening up straight away a first intuition around every single major city in the UK, you may decide, let's start in one city, see if there's a demand. And if successful, then we can grow it out afterwards and then start to expand. So you can do it in a variety of different ways. But the ultimate goal is longer term, and it will be more profitable then, but by starting now, on this, maybe on a smaller scale. Brilliant point. So the first real option is to follow on the growth potential. What might this lead to if we say yes to it? Or if we say no to it, does that mean we've now turned our back on other options down the, the line? The next one is the ability to delay. We've talked about timing, going back to your payback period, Alex. But increasingly, I think people get a bit nervous if they are being pressured into a decision that has to be made immediately. We've all been in that situation, potentially, where somebody said, but you need to make the decision today. Yeah. And we get a bit nervous about that. The example I would always give, I love just doing a deal. I love a, I love a haggle. Uh, okay, over anything, even if I don't really want the good, I'll be honest with you. But sometimes if I am on a market, uh, okay, still haggling over uh, okay, a few items of clothing that I'll no doubt be buying for someone for Christmas, I will sit there and go, oh, and they'll say, best price, £10 I'll do. And I haven't got to say yes or no. I can always go for a walk around, come back in an hour's time, uh, okay, and then see what they say. So you do always, uh, okay, if someone's trying to sell you something, they will try to pressure you into that, okay, making that yes or no decision today. And that still is, okay, represented in terms of the MPVs that we do. We always say if it's positive, accept, negative, reject. It's always one or the other, black or white. Whereas in reality, you can always say, let's wait. Let's, okay, let's wait a little longer and then see what we feel, okay, sleeping on it after a, a few days, a night, whatever it may be. So that's always a, something you can always do in real life. So just being aware, have we got a chance to say, if we don't do it now, could we still do this project in six months' time, yeah. in a year's time? 
or is it very much a one-time opportunity? And that's something you need to weigh up. It's something that businesses and individuals need to think about, need to communicate, need to talk about. I'm yeah. not saying there's a right or wrong answer to that one. It's just, yeah. is there the ability to say, if we don't do it now, is that it? We will never have the opportunity to do it again. Yeah, maybe a competitor squeezes in before you and that, and that slot's gone then to get that kind of first mover advantage. I can hear the branding now. This is a once in a lifetime yeah. investment. But ask the question, is it really once in a lifetime or is there the ability yeah. to still do it in you a year's time? a little bit like Del Boy there. <laughs> <laughs> um, final real option to talk about is the option to abandon. Yeah. We are now thinking worst case scenario, if we have committed to it, is there an exit route? Oh, absolutely. And this follows on... Uh, not to carry on with our real options, but what we said earlier when we're talking about our expected values, our probabilities, we said typically, and this will be the case in exam land, that you will work out that kind of weighted average and use that in your estimate for your future calculations. But, you know, if sales are low and the demand isn't there, you haven't always got to see all four or five years of the project through there might be a chance uh, to cut your losses after one year, incur some exit costs, but then not have to have a huge, maybe negative MPV that may then otherwise come to fruition. So there will be chances to kind of cut your losses, especially if that worst case scenario does occur. So you can always be more flexible than sometimes looking at the whole project in its entirety. I think that's really important to know about the, the timing of any exit. Are we locked into contracts for a certain amount of time? How long would it be before we could start getting out of things? And also ask about the exit costs, oh. because quite often there will be an exit cost that we need to factor in. But knowing that up front and knowing we have got an option to push a button and say, we need to get out of this, we can do. Yeah, the terms of the contract will be absolutely key. And this isn't just obvious. It's not just for businesses. This is personal finance. If anyone here has got a mortgage and you're on a fixed rate mortgage for the next five years and you think, oh, I'm on a great rate today. But then if suddenly interest rates drop massively, which would be lovely, but maybe not for another year or two. But you'd think, oh, actually, I'm on a really bad deal in comparison to what general interest rates are. But if you want to get out of that deal, there will be, a, every time, a huge okay, exit fee. I know when I moved house 18 months ago to get out of my existing mortgage deal, I had to pay a huge exit fee in order to then get a new mortgage to buy my new house. Yeah, something I've been looking at um, recently for First Intuition is negotiating and talking about a lease. And we talk yeah. about having break clauses in something like a lease that says, well, we might have to sign up and commit for five years. But at what point could we say if it's not working or we want to get out of it, there is a natural break point. So all of those things need to be considered in our investment planning up front. And largely that comes down to asking sensible questions, doesn't it? Alex? Yeah. Going into these things with your eyes open doing some due diligence on the investment yeah and it's really with you and whoever that other party is it's kind of clarifying expectations so there will be things like ben said here things like service level agreements so that actually you're maintaining your end of the deal when making those lease payments but if they're not keeping the buildings nice and clean or if they have got leaks in the roof or it's not for whatever reason fit for purpose well you have then haven't got to okay carry on for the foreseeable future and still pay so that brings us all the way round. 
I would then be saying to a student who was using this as an exam question and an answer an exam question, at the end, we do need a conclusion. Mm. In an exam world, we need you to now say, based on all of the information I've just presented to you, I think I would say, yes, we need to continue with the project or no, we don't. Yeah, that will be based usually solely on the financial terms. Uh, OK, will they ask for that clear black and white answer? Um, usually this will be centered around something like MPV, okay, where there is that clear decision. Whereas for something like payback, you may find out the payback of a project is 18 months, but you don't know if that's good, bad, okay, et cetera. But what they may then ask for subsequently after your calculations is what we've just been doing now and talking about those non-financial factors and really just usually giving examples of how that could influence this particular project or this particular investment appraisal decision and the final thing i would add I, I don't like students asking lots of questions in their answer but i would normally suggest could you think up one or two things you would like to get more information on to just enhance your decision so a good way to add some depth to your answer is in your conclusion saying but i recommend that further work is done on this or further research is done here or we get some more information on this not loads and loads of points, but maybe two, would you yeah, say? absolutely. And I think, yeah, some of the things you actually said there were really nice. Usually it'll be further information, maybe on other alternatives, the wider economy, uh, the amount of finance we have available, or one of you, just other options we also have. Brilliant. Alex, that's a really nice, balanced look at investment appraisal. We've covered some of the financial techniques that are particularly relevant to us in the yeah. world of accounts. We've looked at some of the risk factors that need to be talked about, considered and effectively accepted or declined in the project. We've looked at some of the non-financial factors. I do believe that is a growing area of ethical and social conscience in investment, not just reaping the benefits of a project, but genuinely thinking there's any damage been done to the environment or to people in the, the project. And then finally, those real options. What's the growth potential? What could this lead on to? How easy would it be for us to delay the project so we're not pressured into starting it now? And finally, if worst case scenario happens, is there an exit strategy? Has that been discussed and communicated? And have we considered the implications of that before we've said yes to the project? Um, thank you very much. No, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and review.